so it may make even worse. Alright, in that case I will go ahead and see if I can clean things up on this end. Oh yeah, it's looking better now. Did you just close something? Yeah, I'm, I'm going through and re and turning off programs. Alright, that should be better now. Yep. Okay. So, let's, let's start then from uh, that point that we were mentioning about personality view. Yep. That the that the, that first fetter is actually a teammate of the first three fetters, and so uh, we kind of work on those three fetters together, and that in a way it's actually just an intellectual exercise, in right. the sense that um, the first three fetters are actually just about knowledge or it's about thinking that the deeper fetters are the ones that go after the feelings oh all right and and so the feeling of ill will that that leads to anger and not liking destruction and the feeling of uh, greed or liking desire. or uh, desire, these are, these are the primary two feelings that are in the second noble truth. Right. Okay, and that third item on the, on the eightfold, uh, excuse me, the third item of the second noble truth is ignorance. And that's what we're dealing with with these first three fetters. Let's get out of our ignorance so that now we can properly deal with these two major big feelings that we have. And that after we deal with them, then we can see the really deep underlying tendencies, oh, the higher fetters. Right, I see. All right. Now, there are times and places where... Um, a person, no matter what stage of their development, they can, in fact, touch upon some of these higher fetters. Right. An example of that is, is that it's been known for many, many centuries, and the Bible has quite a lot to say about pride. The pride cometh before a fall. Right. And things like this. Okay. Yeah. But that... Um, The ordinary way of looking at it is, is that pride has an opposite, which would be humility. Yes. To where within the context of the teachings of the Buddha, that, that pride actually comes out of a fetter that is called manna, uh, and that that manna actually means conceit, and that it is uh, exhibited in competition. Yep. And that the competition has um, an endpoint to it, and that endpoint is friendliness when we stop competing. 
Yep. All right. So that means that we're coming to a balance or an equilibrium to where within Christianity and most modern uh, philosophy now that humility is the antidote for pride. Yep. But within the context of the teachings of the Buddha, oh no, humility is just another loser's mentality. Yep. Right? Being humble means that... uh, 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 that you are humiliating or that you are subverting or coming down to being something under the pride. So pride and, and mm. uh, um, humility uh, work together within that context because the people themselves are not really ready to deal with it because they really haven't dealt with their lust and their anger and all of that kind of stuff. At the medium level. And the reason that they haven't dealt with it at that level is because they haven't gotten the underlying truth, the underlying real knowledge. Right. That, number one, the the fetter of doubt is erased, which now you have the intellectual knowledge that you can do this. Yeah. You are the winner now. So it actually begins to change our attitude about things. So... Let's go back to that point about intellectual knowledge about who we are. Most of us have the intellectual knowledge, which has a lot of ignorance built into it, that I am my personality. This is just yeah. who I am. But the Buddha breaks down that, that uh, group that we uh, create as what we call the personality, and he breaks them down into the five aggregates. Yeah. The five aggregates are actually the definition of who I am. And that ordinary ignorant people who have that level of ignorance are going to then um, misconstrue who I am with the various pieces that they find themselves to be. Mm. A very common one. In fact, it's just it, this one is just mind-boggling that it's so big and so powerful and so obvious. Why can't humanity see this? And yet we don't. We're blind to it. And that's this. We are attached to the body. I am the body. Yep. And that I am the body gives rise to a number of industries that are actually, we don't yep. need these industries at all. And I'm not talking about basic clothing industry or the cloth making industry. I'm talking about the fashion industry. Yep. I'm talking about the show off industry. Okay. Talking about uh, that I am the body, which means now I have to, if I'm going to be beautiful, the body has to be beautiful. <laughs> and so off to the gym we go. Yeah. Right? So all physical exercises is about body beautiful. All of the clothing is about body beautiful. And, and look at cosmetics. And another industry that we could look at would be even the pharmaceutical and the medical industry. I am the body. Yeah. But I suppose there's also the survival part of it. Well, there is good reason for medical science. There are good reasons to have doctors. Yeah. 
Unfortunately, most people who go to the doctor are not going to the doctor for good reasons. They're taking up the doctor's time. The doctor might, in fact, if, if a doctor only dealt with actual sick people, he'd probably enjoy his job a lot better. Yeah, that's most true. Are, and, and, and I know because my mother took me to the doctor when I was a child, and I didn't understand what was going on until I got into psychology later to find out that my mom was a hypochondriac. Oh. Okay, which meant that she took me and went to the doctor more often than thing. necessary. Yeah. Why? Because she didn't trust her own body. She didn't know her own body, therefore she wanted one doctor after another. Now we moved around a lot when I was a kid, but I remember mom's first doctor. He was Dr. Young. He was the one who born me. I actually, when I was about four years old, was able to ride in his airplane. <laughs> no way. But the, um, uh, uh, the knowledge of doctors came later. When I saw my mom, when we would move to a new town, the first thing she'd do is establish the new doctor. Right. And I, I would go so far as to say that my dad's income alone may have been enough for us to have gotten by, but my mom always worked because she had doctor bills to pay. Mm. Why? Because of that over-identification, I am the body. Hypochondriacs are like that, but the fashion industry, uh, beauty contest, all of that kind of stuff mm. is, is based upon uh, identification with, with the body. But that's only one of the five aggregates. Once we run to understand that I am not the body, I've got to put up with this one until it croaks, and when it does, so do I. Mm -hmm. But I am not this body. That we have to come to understand. Also, we are not the feelings. The second yep. aggregate is we are not the feelings. Uh, or uh, there is basically the way that it's said in the Pali is is that the Buddha asks, "Is there a self in the body?" And the Buddhist monks answered, no, sir, no. there is no self in the body, which is, uh, in English, we'd say, no, I am not the body. Yep. The self, whatever the self is, it's not this physical body. Yep. And then uh, the feelings. There is no self in feelings, which means that this is kind of tricky because most people think that they are their feelings when, in fact, the feelings generally take over the self. Yeah. In other words, the self is this, but the self is only this in relationship to what owns it. Yeah. Or what was the cause of the source of this self? What is the, what is the, uh, the rationale of the regard for the self is anger. I am angry. Or yeah. sad. I am sad. Or happy. I am happy. Or... Uh, uh, fearful, I am afraid. These are the kinds of things that we associate with being the body and the feelings as me. Mm. Where in fact, 
uh, when we begin to investigate, we recognize, wait, number one, I'm not these feelings. And number yep. two, I can disassociate myself from these feelings to recognize that whatever I am is higher than these feelings. But that with the untrained mind, the feeling becomes the boss. Yep. And so, therefore, I am that feeling or I am my feelings. I am angry, etc., like that. But now we're recognizing, no, through wisdom, we can see I'm not the body and I'm not these feelings. It felt like it felt like the sense of self was just a mental idea, which was kind of just um, it, it wasn't really all that solid. It was just um, just an idea. You know? Ah, but it is that self that is the necessary ingredient for that what suffers. Yeah. Okay, anger in itself is not suffering. But when I am angry, now there's an I to suffer. Yep, exactly. And so I am thrown into the hell world of suffering. Okay. In fact, what we're really talking a lot about Patitya Samuppada today, but we only got started with it from the concept of the five aggregates because we're looking right. at this first better. Right. But, that, but the entire teaching of the Patitya Samuppada is based around we have to loosen our identity about who we are for one major reason, and that is, is that whoever I am... I am not a fixed target. Whatever I am, I'm in motion. I'm a process. I am not a fixed me. The me is constantly changing. It's constantly in in flux, and often it's not even there. So we grasp these aggregates. That's, That's what makes them linger, the amount we grasp them. Mm-hmm. So we grow up in a delusion, and that delusion is supported by all of the adults around us who have that same delusion. Yeah. And that delusion is, I am a self or I am a me, and I will grow up to be, and whatever that being is, that will be me, and that's a self. Okay? But the, but the entire point that the Buddha is making about this is Anicca, 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 Anicca. Everything is in flux. Everything is in turmoil. Even me. Mm. And if it's me that's in flux and in turmoil, that has a significant point to it in the sense that that means I can change. Yep. And that also has the quality that if I, if I can change, I can either change ignorantly, not knowing the change, or I can do it wisely by knowing the change. Okay. Okay, the change is going to occur. I'm going to get angry, and then I'm going to get sad, and then I'm going to be uh, on top of the world, and then I'm going to be buried under it, and, and all of that thing keeps changing. And I keep saying, no, but it's still me. No, it's not the same you. No, it's not. Yeah. 
not to say every time that emotion changes, it's actually a new me that's in there. Yeah. Yep. And that it can be changed. Not just changed overall or eventually, but changed right now. Always our choice. That we can change things at any minute. And what does that require? It works, require to wake up, investigate, look at what's going on. Okay? To literally wake up and smell to make sure it's coffee. <laughs> <laughs> that smelling that we're talking about, that's the investigation. To wake up and investigate, to see what's going on. Now, by doing so over and over and over again, this concept of me begins to weaken with people. Mm -hmm. And so it does take a while. I mean, I can talk people, generally talk them into the fact that there is no self. But it takes a while for us to actually figure that out. Mm -hmm. To figure out that whoever I am, it's changing. Whoever I am, I can actually decide what way it's going to change. I can change intentionally into the wholesome. And sometimes I can intentionally change into the unwholesome. Mm. But over a long time of training, we tend not to do that so much anymore. And we tend to only manage, when we're managing things, to manage out of the unwholesome into the wholesome. Yep. Um, so... This whole quality of this first fetter is this understanding that we can change. That's an important quality. That's actually the quality of, of the coming out of, of doubt, in a way. Mm -hmm. Because the first quality of doubt is, is that I need help, which means I cannot change myself enough to get myself out of the jam I'm in. That's why we wanted Jesus, is because mm. I'm a sinner, and it's an original sin, and I can't get out of it on my own. I need help. It's the magical thinking. Magical thinking, right. Well, we got that magical thinking started because of the ways that, that our mommies operated was yep. to come and help the little kid. Okay, and so we grew up from, uh, from childhood thinking that we needed help with some things which meant that basically we never fully grew up. When we grow mm. up completely, that means that we uh, are not just self-sufficient, but we're actually capable of taking care of others. Mm. That we become an actual caregiver, not just someone who wants to be a caregiver so that they can get care back. Yeah. Which is the helper's mentality. Yep. So, um, actually, Eric Byrne and T.A. is really big on that helper's mentality. That was my mom, too. She was a helper. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I think... Uh, meant that yeah. If, she, if she couldn't help somebody, she felt bad. Mm-hmm. Helpers and hypochondriacs, I think they tend to go together. Yeah? Why? Because they're opposites of the same coin. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> so, uh, this helper hypochondriac mentality that we get into, we learned that from our parents. 
and then we live our lives uh, thinking and we grow up to it also in the sense that uh, now it's an ingrained habit that we have. But then along comes something else going on, and that is the belief that I am permanent. Mm -hmm. And this is just a belief, just a conception, but this is one of the uh, things that is taught in religion because they need that self to be permanent, everlasting, for two reasons. One is because if it is a self that is permanent, unchanging, and everlasting, it cannot fix itself. And number two, which is the bigger deal, is is that if it is in fact uh, uh, permanent and everlasting, then it is completely manipulatable. Yep. Only a no-self is not manipulable. In other words, you, if you've got the perfect baseball, then you can play all kinds of baseball with it. If it's a really high-quality, excellent baseball, you can beat the crap out of it, and it's still good ball, right? Mm. And so this is where we have the idea of the eternal soul, which means that it's strong enough to survive death, yeah. but it is not strong enough to survive God. God's going to take that baseball yeah. or that football and he's going to play ball with it. He's going to kick it into hell or into heaven according to his whims. And so you better suck up to him. In fact, sucking up to God is more important than your sin. Yeah. Because you cannot help your sin, but you can help sucking up. Okay. And so that's what religion has come to is not that we can in fact get out of our own trouble but that we have to suck up and that keeps us in that victim's position so uh, that's one of the reasons why Buddhism the teachings of the Buddha is liberating mm. to where Christianity is not liberating yeah and because of that, all of the people who go into Christianity, they suffer under the same things that they would have normally. Now they just light a fire to it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the, not only does the preacher have to deal with all the other kind of stuff that non-preachers have to deal with, he also has to deal with the little girls in the audience and the collection plate. Yeah. And he has a, and he has not the skills to deal with either one of them successfully because mm. he's sinner too. Yep. And that's what brings so many scandals into religions. And yeah. you can see that it's not that the scandals are new, it's that the scandals are newly publicized because of um, cameras and internet and technology yep. and things coming to light. So that um, when what happens in an altercation with the police, the judge will listen and believe the cop's point of view. Yep. But if we've got actual evidence from the video of what happens, now things are going to start to change. Yep. Okay. And that's what's happening with Christianity is is that it's kind of losing ground because people are beginning to see. The knowledge is coming. Yeah. 
And that part of the knowledge that people have to gain is, is that they can change. They're not stuck the way that Christianity teaches them that they are stuck. Mm. You do not have to get forgiveness from your sins. You can stop the sin. You can stop missing the mark. You can make a change. This is what this letter is all about. Mm. And yet so much of it has gotten that it's philosophical. And that, uh, uh, in also with the idea with, with rebirth, that in yep. Christian, uh, Buddhism has its own version of that. And if you don't mind, I'll go off into that rat hole for a little while. It's not even a rabbit hole, it's a rat hole. Go for it. And that, and that is that, you see, all throughout Southeast Asia, there has been the influence of Hinduism that had the influence from the Brahmins that had to do with uh, your state of your life now depends upon your past existence. That's what Brahmins were teaching because there was a time when they began to have trouble maintaining their power. The Aryans were giving them a fierce competition. And so they're, uh, and they didn't have much of an army to speak Mm -hmm. of either. Uh, and so their defense was, oh, well, we are the priest. We've got to run the religion. You can't run this religion. Only the Brahmins can run the religion. That's just how it is. Mm-hmm. And they said, but we are born Brahmin. You cannot become a Brahmin by doing a ceremony. You've got to be born Brahmin. And that we, we're lucky because we were born Brahmin, and we were born Brahmin not simply because of luck, it's because we were good in the past. And that you were not Brahmin, which means that you were somehow not so good as us in the past. <laughs> and that, that that story that I just told you got started in about 800 B.C. That's oh, okay. about... 100 years and it's beginning to get stuck in there and this is when the Buddha run across it and already at 300 years you see there was still it wasn't that set in yeah so there was a lot of teachers who were saying ain't true okay that's why he uses those terms in his teachings to kind of shake up the beliefs to shake up the belief system because the belief system in a permanent self prevents people from getting on the path and practicing the method because the underlying uh, prevention is I can't change, I cannot fix myself, I have to have the big comma machine or the Brahmin ceremony or something like that to help me Mm -hmm. because I can't help myself. And the whole teachings of the Buddha is, yes, you can. You can change yourself. Just need to remember. Exactly. Why do we have to remember that is because we have been taught for so long. Our previous habits. From the old previous habits that, no, you can't change. You have to do what you're told to do. And then maybe you'll get a reward from doing what you were told to do. But you didn't earn it. You didn't do it. It was given to you kind of as a gift. Which also is all about the comma in the sense of 
you do good to get a good result and you do bad and you'll get a bad result and that um, this is actually a, a, something that we can use to create a society because if people do not believe that there is good and bad action that gives good and bad results then we'll wind up in anarchy yeah. we'll wind up in barbarianism we'll wind up in very primitive states and this is, in fact, the Buddha, he talks about that in the sense of wrong view. Mm-hmm. And the way that I use the word wrong view is by the little phrase, I can get away with it. Yep. And so most of those things start with, I can get away with it because. Mm. And here's some of the answers. I can get away with it because Allah is merciful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can get away with it because I can go to the confessional and confess and get forgiveness. Mm-hmm. I can get away with it because there is no God. <laughs> yeah. I can get away with it because there is no comma. There is mm-hmm. no results of good and bad action. Okay. There are, and I can get away with it because, after all, my mom and my dad are nothing to me. There's no origin. I can get away with it because there are no mystics or gurus or holy people are in that. They're all a bunch of charlatans. Okay, so this is kind of the attitude. I can get away with it because I know what's best. Mm. And this is a wrong view because it always winds up uh, in a disaster of some sort or another. Yep. Okay. I won't even mention Donald Trump as a good example. <laughs> so the right view ordinary right view comes back with oh no you can't Uh, oh no you can't get away with it but the right noble view is look at what you're doing but let's do that one later Right now, we're going to have to say, well, you cannot get away with it. And that's when the, 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 let us say, the actual law of karma that does exist in the form of cause and effect. That, in fact, in the Lion's Roar Sutta, the Buddha talks about that he knows karma and the results of karma is based upon the cause and effect. It's immediately. If you stick your hand in the fire, you do not have to wait 300 years for it to burn. Yep. It happens now, okay? And, and yet, um, when the guy who has wrong view says, I can get away with it, the other guy has to say, oh, no, you can't. Someday you'll get caught. Hmm. Well, that someday actually is what puts that time reference into comma. And the reality of the situation that time and distance or time and speed are interrelated uh, at the, uh, the square of the inverse. One over X squared. Or uh, like E equals MC squared, we'll take the C squared and put it on the other side of the equation, and E divided by the speed of light is the mass. So this is the point that we're talking about, okay? 
which means that any action that a human takes in the um, in the realm of physics, the ability for that reaction to happen diminishes very quickly because it's at the square of the distance in time from it. Mm-hmm. They didn't know that in the time of, of the Brahmins. They thought that it was steady state. Yeah. This action has diminishes. And but now we're understanding, oh no, all action, including light itself, which is nothing but an action, does diminish at the square of the distance or at mm. the square of speed of light because in fact the speed of something and the distances it is from you are directly related. Mm. Speed and distance are in fact the same thing, just like time and space are the same thing. Speed and distance are the same thing. Yeah. Can you wrap around uh, can you wrap your head around time and space are the same thing? Yeah. Okay, well, there's your space and there's your time. <laughs> I can wrap my head around the space and time thing, but not the speed and distance thing. Why not? Okay, well, space is your distance and speed is your time. I think I see what you mean. <laughs> It takes a little physics to understand that, but yes, space and time means that speed and distance are directly related to the point that they're the same thing. How far something is away from you has to do with the speed that it left. Right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now you see it. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah, how far something is away from you has directly to do with how fast it's traveling away from you. Yeah. And then you measure the time. And, yep. the, and the faster it's going in this relationship to time, then the further it is away. Comma and our actions work exactly that way, too. Which mm -hmm. means it's unlikely for the comma machine to dig you up 300 years after you've been buried just to kick you in the ass. Not likely to happen like that, but this is an old story, and the old story works. It works because it helps one person control another. So what about when you remember something from the past? Doesn't matter if it's good or bad, but remembering something from the past must be a result of the intensity the intensity of that thing that happened in the past you're right it does have a lot to do with it <clears throat> the example that i will uh that i often use is johnny is writing on the wall in his bedroom he's got his crayons out and it's a you know painted wall <laughs> and he's enjoying the heck out of himself for 10 or 15 minutes and then mommy comes in and she does not like it at all and she throws a hissy fit Yep. Years later, Johnny's going to more remember the hissy fit that mom had, and he's not going to remember so much the 20 minutes of pure delight he had in drawing <laughs> on the wall. I actually have he's a very similar experience. remember what he wrote on the wall, but he's certainly <laughs> going to remember mom. Yep. Okay, so we tend to remember the big, heavy episodes. Yep. Why is that? 
because we need that kind of information for survival. We mm -hmm. need to remember danger as danger so that we can recognize danger later. And that serves us well if we live in a dangerous world. Yep. But we've been successful enough so that now we don't live in a dangerous world, but we still have those instincts. Yeah. And because of that instinctual world, we build up a lot of really heavy-duty episodes and yep. we remember them. And that what happens when we do free association and the mind just is wandering, like wandering around in the past, more than likely within 10 or 15 uh, uh, thoughts, you'll run across one of these time bombs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the kid can remember, oh, I remember that bedroom. Oh, that was such a nice bedroom. I remember this pillow and I remember that sheet and I remember drawing on the wall and I remember my mommy <laughs> <laughs> and now we're in suffering yep. <laughs> and so that's exactly how that particular stuff happens is, is that we tend to stump, rummage around in the past until we stumble on something that's painful yeah that is exactly what happens yeah and this is a very good reason for staying out of the past <laughs> yep but there's another good reason for staying out of the past, too, for the meditator. And that is, is that over time in your meditation practice and as you're practicing the Eightfold Noble Path and living a higher quality, more noble life, that means that your standards are higher now than they were when you were a kid. In fact, our whole lives, our standards have never been stationary, never been yeah. that way. Our standards are always moving up and down depending upon the circumstances. Yep. But because of the idea of self, that's kind of like, well, my standards, that's part of who I am. I've got these exactly. standards. Yeah. Okay, well, that just proves right there that you're not the self that you thought you were because <laughs> we can prove that your standards have been changing. Yeah, always changing. <laughs> right. So because of that, and now our standards are very high, that means when we go into the past, we're going to be going into areas that, are, that we know of are, where our behavior is not going to meet up to the standards that we hold for ourselves now. Yep. That's another good reason to stay out of the past. Let's stay in friendly territory, and that's enemy territory back in the past. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and that is in fact the part of the intellectual understanding that we come to. Uh, this is also part of the teaching of um, personality view in, in the sense that uh, the past is dangerous. Yeah. And yet, Definitely. most of the time we spend, ordinary people spend a lot of their time in the past reminiscing about who am I and what I did and this is me and all of that kind of stuff. And that's why it's so fraught with danger. They're going to run across something and they're going to stub their mental toe on it. And it's going to mm -hmm. hurt. But here we are. We're staying, learning to stay out of dangerous territories. We're learning to stay out of the hindrances of the mind. To keep the, the mind from being that kind of restless. So it wanders into our own self-manufactured cesspools of the past. So this is that first fetter, and that the whole point about rebirth within Buddhism, I don't know quite where that came from, but I do know that it had the quality that 
it happened at the time of Ashok, to where before the time of Ashok, the teachings of the Buddha were quite pure. In the there was no rebirth in the teachings then, back there's then. No te- there's no teachings of rebirth anywhere. No in way. Oh, wow. There, and yet the, the later literature has it, because in 300 B.C. time frame, 270, that uh, 300 B.C., was when King Ashok um, took Buddhism on as uh, what you would call a royal patronage. Yeah. Or he started supporting it, which meant he, that he, uh, and he did a lot of really, really good stuff. He built a lot of yep. roads. Not only did he build, build roads, but he planted both sides of the roads with trees, and every 10 miles or so he would put a way station. So he really did connect things around like that. But another thing that he did was that he built monasteries, and he put a lot of the teachings of the Buddha into print and had it chiseled into stone and had edicts put all over the place. In fact, it was in the 1980s when they finally found Lumpini, which was the birthplace of the Buddha. Yep. How did they find it? They dug up a stone that had... Uh, um, Engravings. Uh, it, it was engraved with uh, the stuff from uh, King of Soak. <laughs> and it says, I am King of Soak, and this is the place where the Buddha was born. I mean, and that just <laughs> nailed it right then. Yep. We've got it now. We know where the Buddha was born because um, uh, the Lumpini was um, uh, nailed with um, an obelisk or um, something like that. So this is what uh, Soak did. But the problem was is that he also made robe and arms round very easy to do for the Buddhist monks, but he didn't do it for all of the mendicants, which meant that there was a great influx into the Buddhist tradition at about this time. Uh-huh. Huge numbers of new students. Too many for individual teachers to sit down with each of the students and explain this stuff to them. Which meant then the students came and they talked to themselves. They didn't have the old um, uh, elders. They didn't have the Terra. All they had was the big boat. And in fact, there was a conference held, the third conference. And that uh, King Asok actually supported the conference. Mm. Bad idea. Because that meant that it was held in Rajgrid, the capital. The monks themselves, if they were going to hold a campus, they could have held it in Satania or out in the woods someplace. But anyway, oh no, yeah. the king wanted it to be in the capital, which meant now you're there with all of the monks who don't belong in this council. Only the Therese should be in the council. Right, well, yeah. Nobles know how to ask questions of nobles to check to see whether they're noble or not. Because at the first time when I heard this story, I said, well, how did they figure that out? And that was actually an interesting question to solve, because that defines how do you know who is noble or not? Mm. The answer is you can ask some people some questions. Sometimes they're tricky questions, and you can trick them into giving an ordinary answer instead of giving a noble answer, and they kind of give themselves away. So this is how it was chosen. Well, the monks who did not get into this council were unhappy because they could not get in. 
So what did they do? They had their own council. <laughs> this was called the Maha Sangha. Mm-hmm. This was actually the beginning of the breakup between the Mahayana and the Tara, the Theravada, the teachings of the elders. Uh-huh. Now that did not mean that things remained in the sense that only Theravadas can be noble and Mahayana cannot be, because it's really clear that there's a lot of nobles in the Mahayana tradition. A really easy, clear example of that is uh, the Dalai Lama. It's really easy and clear to see that he is noble. Yep. If you know the right questions to ask. <laughs> yeah. And you know the right history from it. So, in that regard, um, this is where the, the Sangha got polluted. And from that time forward, there has the idea of rebirth. But even in the suttas, so I've been on Reddit and, and uh, uh, seen that some of my friends have asked them, well, What's the difference between Buddhist rebirth and Hindu reincarnation? All right. And nobody, we, we can't come up with an answer because there's not <laughs> anything in the sutras to talk about it like that. I actually, um, there was a time, uh, like maybe a, six months ago or so, when I, um, I actually did that search on Reddit. I searched um, rebirth in all the related subreddits and... Um, yeah, it was. It's definitely a gray area. Well, it's only gray because the primary reason is because of the Christian influence and the belief in a soul is so common that belief in uh, uh, that kind of, of rebirth. Now, the word jati doesn't necessarily mean birth in the sense of uh, giving birth to a, a baby that mm -hmm. even in English we have various uses for the word birth. Yeah. A birth is where you keep a ship, and a birth is where the sailor sleeps on the ship. So the oh, birth really? can be a bed. Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. You weren't in the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, so you have your birth. That's your rack. The army, they call it the rack, but in, uh, in the Navy, they can call it a birth. So, um, and uh, we also have it a key, a bay, a berth, port, all of those words are simultaneously. That's where the ship is docked. Um, and so, um, the English language birth is used many different ways, too. If I were going to say there is a real difference between Buddhist rebirth, the ordinary kind of Buddhist, and reincarnation, it could be seen from Sutta number 38, where the Buddha um, is ferocious with Sati, son of a fisherman, about how wrong he is to think that it is consciousness that goes from a uh, uh, round of rebirth so that the consciousness can experience the results of bad, a good and bad karma. Yeah, and then but the Buddha can't. really gives him a hard time, and then he talks long about consciousness is dependently arising. With the phenomena. With the phenomena. When you have an object and you have eyes, then you have sight. Yeah. When there is no object, you have no sight. Yeah. 
when you close your eyes, you have no sight. So consciousness in that regard, the seeing, is based upon conditions. It's a conditionality, cause and effect. Yeah. Everything is subject to cause and effect, and there. But they try to get away with saying, "Oh no, the self uh, is not subject to cause and effect, except by the comma machine. Only the comma machine can do cause and effect with the self. Other than that, it's permanent, right? It's like logic here. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> and so there is." There is no real understanding between Buddhist rebirth and um, reincarnation. Reincarnation, but the Buddha was very clear in many of the suttas where these guys who do believe in reincarnation, he says, "Aha! The Buddha is talking about re rebirth right here, right here, right here." You get down to the bottom of the um, the sutta, and he says, "Therefore." Old monks do not be reborn. Well, what that means is we've got to have a different view of what the word rebirth here means, because it's not the rebirth of the self. It is the actual birth of this concept of a self, or this thing which we've, uh, we think of ourselves as the self. But in fact, it only becomes that self when it goes into a woeful state. So basically, we can say that the human mind, like you and I are sitting here, the mind is in a human state with the human frontal cortex operating. Yeah. Therefore, how we would be reborn would be reborn into a woeful state. And these woeful states are the same states mentally that people associate with uh, the world of rebirth and reincarnation in the sense that you can be reborn in hell or you can be reborn in heaven or you can be reborn as an animal or you can be reborn as a ghost. These are the physical things that people can be reborn to. That in fact in, in uh, Christianity they have only heaven and hell. The, the, the issue with hell is easy to understand. God don't like you, and you've got to suffer. But hell is a bit, uh, heaven is a bit of an interesting thing, because he heaven is a nice place, right? Yeah. But you're not in charge. you still nope. got to go around and do what you're told to do. Yep. Uh, let's, let's look at it like this. The pickpocket, he repents, and then he dies. And now he's reborn in heaven as a pickpocket. <laughs> what are the people in heaven going to assume about this guy who's a pickpocket? He goes around picking everybody's pocket. Well, what about the preacher who um, uh, is, winds up in heaven, but now he molests all the little girls and he takes some money out of their offering plate? <laughs> What's God going to do with these people? Are these the kind of people that you want in heaven? Nope. By definition, no, they don't belong, so they're going to get kicked out anyway, right? What kind of heaven was it for them anyway? They're still acting the same way that they did on earth, and they still had the same punishments that they did on earth. I don't see this value of heaven. It doesn't <laughs> make a whole lot of sense. That's very interesting. 
And it gets really specific that way when we talk about it in uh, these four woeful states. In other words, what I'm saying is heaven is a woeful state. Yeah. And that's, um, yeah, wow. And so here is how it plays out. Let's first look at the other three first because it's very easy to see that these are woeful states. Yep. One of them is hell. Yep. What is the highest quality of hell? What's one thing that you can say about hell that everybody understands? Yes, that's hell. The answer is, I don't like it. I want right. out of here. Yeah. Yeah, that's the quality of hell. Okay, it may not have to do with what kind of fire and what kind of brimstone or whether it's ice or whatever like that. The point is, is that we don't like it. We want out of here. Yeah. Okay. That's exactly the mental state that we have of being angry and frustrated or uh, full of anxiety and tension. We don't like it and we want out of this. We want out of here. So when we are reborn in hell, we don't have to die and then be reborn because of, in hell because of a common machine or God. We actually are reborn, ourselves is reborn into this woeful state because of the feelings that came up. Mm. And these feelings is what puts us into that woeful state. Yeah. So because anger is associated with, I don't like it. Yeah. I want out of here. Uh, ill will. Everything about anger is ill will. Yep. Okay, I want out of it. I don't want it. I don't like it. Okay, so... Let's look at the opposite of that. The opposite of that is I like it. I want it. Yeah. I want it. I gotta have it. I gotta have more. I like it. I like it. I like it. Oh, she's so gorgeous. Oh, I want her. Let me see if I can get her to take her clothes off. Okay. <laughs> I want more. I want more. I want more. That's Always the state wanting of more. I I am born in the a uh, woeful state of um, being a, a hungry ghost that cannot be filled. Uh, years ago, there was a set of movies called uh, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Yep. One of the movies had uh, the, uh, all of the ghosts. that were They were having a great big party. And as they were drinking the alcohol, the whiskey, it would come through their mouths, down through their bones, yep. and wash out. And that. they never got any benefit of what they were drinking. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. This is the quality of a ghost. Yep. The ghost is, it doesn't matter what he wants, he's not going to get it. Yep. The next one is the one that I find most Westerners in, and that is the animal world. What is the animal world? The animal is the one who is trained to do what he's told to do, and he gets no benefit or reward from it. Mm-hmm. So we start training our children as animals. You go clean your room. Why? Not because, child, you want a clean room, and therefore you go clean your own room out of your own willingness, which is one of the ways to do it. It's no, the boss, the big person, the gorilla yep. in the room, daddy is saying, you go clean your room because I want it clean. Yep. But Doing the right what you're told. If daddy wants the kid's room clean, he can go with the boy into the room and make a game out of cleaning the room. Because mm -hmm. the kid actually probably would like to have his room cleaned up also. 
Yep. And if instead of being an angry situation, they can make it joyful, then the child will enjoy cleaning up his room. Yep. I've exactly. I've also seen kids really hate it. So we teach our kids in school to do what you're told to do. You learn your ABCs. You learn to read three-letter words and <laughs> give you the reward, reward of going to the second grade where you have to learn four-letter words. Yep. Numbers you've learned now, you have to learn to add them together. Yeah. And when you learn how to do that, guess what? Your reward is we've got a third grade for you. Yep. And on and on and on it goes until we finally graduate from high school. And what have we got now? We either go get a job or we go to more school. Yeah. But whenever we get out of school, what is the reward for getting out of school? A job? What? That's probably rewarded after 16 years of all of this work. Yep. More work, that's our reward. <laughs> yeah, it's um yeah, it's uh I've been thinking about that so much over the last few months. Just is that really a good way to live? Exactly. And and that's that's the way so we are in fact the self is reborn as an animal. Yep. And the qualities of that taking that birth is, is that we do what we're told to do because it's instinctual, but we do not get a reward for it. Mm. So the guy goes to work in the morning and he, in fact, if he would, he could enjoy that job, but he doesn't. He does it because of the paycheck. But yeah. the paycheck is not thinking about the future. Always thinking about the future and we don't get our reward for the moment. And so this is the woeful state of being an animal. And most humans are in that animal state of being unhappy and miserable doing what they're told to do. This actually is one of the instincts. It's the herding instinct or the nesting instinct. Go along to get along. Mm. And so there's one more, and that's the one that we were going to talk about. And that is the heavenly world. And in the Pali, it's referred to as Asuras. The Asura is actually the same uh, level in the um, um, Panthony in, as in Greece, the Titans. Giving names titans. like the Titans. Yeah, the Titanics uh. are warriors. The Titans are uh, the Asuras are the warriors. And they are in battle gear. They are heavily trained. They are ready for battle. They are all dressed up with no place to go. <laughs> what do we mean by that? This is, in fact, that fourth feeling that we haven't talked about. The going along to getting along, the um, uh, wanting things that we don't have, and uh, the anger and frustration of hell has a source, a bottom line. The bottom of all of this is fear. And this is the, the asuras is that they are afraid to go to battle. Mm. Why? Because that, that's the lowest level of heaven. Yep. The higher levels of heaven will beat the snot out of them and they know it. And so they don't mm -hmm. want to go to battle. But they're the big warriors. Okay. See how many times that happens in our life. A good example is the kid's done his uh, practice on his piano, his recital time. 
the teacher calls him up. Now it's his time to play, and he freezes. Mm, yep. All the kids out on stage, okay? We have things like stage fright. This is yep. that, that frozen state of the assurance. And then we recognize, wait a minute, we do that a lot. Yeah. We don't know that when, when we're doing our meditation, if we're not careful, we'll get into a very, very shallow breathing that we need to maintain, even if it's a long, long, long deep in-breath, that's okay, but we don't want it to become a long, shallow breath. We want it to be a, a deep so that we're getting the oxygen that we need, even if we're down to two or three breaths a minute. Three breaths a minute is only 20 seconds. That's an actual easier one. Two and a half, that's, that's getting there. Two breaths a minute, that, that takes some real settling down. But it's still always a breath. It's not a shallow breath. We don't lose the breathing. Okay? And that's where we talk about with the Asuras is, is that they're literally out of breath. They don't breathe because they're scared. They're afraid. Yeah. And so these are the four woeful states that come out of clinging. Each one of the four modes of clinging will take us into one of these four hell states or one of these four woeful states, and it's always the self that is created to go there. Mm. So it is literally the, the self is the vehicle or the vessel for dukkha. If we don't go into one of these four woeful states, then there is no suffering. Mm. But the suffering is almost guaranteed once we get to the mode of clinging because it's going to go one after the other into that. That we have to stop things at an earlier place. And the so, place that we want to start stop things is at the feeling level. Yes, yeah, so I noticed that when there's thoughts it's very easy to just come out of the thoughts and come into the now as soon as I remember. But the feelings, um, they, they linger because they're still being held onto. And, and that's where the work needs to be done. I wouldn't necessarily say that. What no? I would say that they linger because they have a deeper level of body chemistry. In oh, other words, okay. once I start leaking a lot of adrenaline into my system, even though I recognize that I'm doing that and put a stop to it, that adrenaline needs, that's in the system needs to be breathed out and to be taken care of. Right. It's not just adrenaline, but cortisol and some really nasty other stuff gets into the blood pretty poisonous stuff gets in there and yeah. then it takes a little while to drain that stuff out even when we're really good at draining it out yeah it does uh, yeah I, I did notice that yeah so for instance anxiety can be breathed out but it may take five or sometimes even ten breaths if we can keep focused and keep watching for that ten breath time we can recognize oh, you know something that anxiety is going down hmm an easier one to deal with would be tiredness. That when we recognize that we're tired because we're not getting enough breathing, we're not that our breathing has gotten too shallow. 
three or four breaths is all we need, and I, I feel better now. Yeah. Okay, so a lot of it has to do with breathing, but yes, some of the feelings take a while. Okay. That even, here's an example also, that um, people can become instantly afraid, very afraid of something. Yep. And then they recognize that it's not true. Even after they recognize that it's not true and there was no reason for me to be afraid, still the fear lingers. Yes, that's An true. An example of that is the old man walks into his house and he sees the belt that he left on the floor, but he mistakes it for a snake. <laughs> and he panics. And he closes the door and he says, what well, I mean, I got to do something. And then he goes and he opens the door again and said, wait a minute. That's not a snake, it's a belt. <laughs> but he's still got the fear. Yeah. Even if he picks up the belt and throws it across the room and laughs, he's still got that adrenaline. He's All still got chemicals. the in the body that they don't relax that quickly. Yeah. They can, but it seems like that they can be, um, let us say, pumped up or turned on almost instantly. Yep. Within a second or two, they can be, you can flood the whole body with fear. Yep. And it takes 20 or 30 seconds for that fear to drain out. But so if we take close to... attention to it, we can cut that time down in half. Well, eventually, you can just not experience the fear, right? You can just stop it. Well, the easy way to do that is open the door and look at the belt and say, that's a belt. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I investigated, I looked at it, and I saw that it's a belt. Yep. So investigation. Right, investigation. That, and then basically, so this fear that we have is mostly coming out of ignorance. We're mistaken. Yeah. Think that there's something there when there's nothing there to be afraid yeah, of. Exactly. That's why I often will ask the students, look at the room you're in. It's a safe place, isn't it? No real dangers there. <laughs> so why do you feel fear? Because <laughs> you're in a safe place. The answer is we're in the habit of feeling that fear. Yep. But now that we can look around and say, yeah, Damarato is right. This room is not dangerous. Yep. And by, by doing that investigation and recognizing that, we can actually begin to get at, come out of that fear within a few seconds. But it does linger. You're exactly okay. right. It doesn't, because we're talking about body chemistry here. So where the things that happen in the mind are really, really fast. But if it turns that anger or that fear faucet on, Unless it run, run for a while, even when we turn it back off, which may take just an instant. I mean, the guy saw it was a, um, a, a, not a snake. It was a belt. Yeah. Immediately, it was like turning that faucet off. Now there's no more fear coming into the system. But boy, is there a lot of it already there. So it all depends on how you react to it, whether you, you react to it wisely or not. So exactly. if you don't like it, then you're in a woeful state. But if you just investigate it and see it just with a neutral um, perspective and just see what it's like, then, well, that's the goal. So this is the point then that we can make, that it's easy and quick to get into the woeful states. 
but it's not so easy to, and quick to get out of them. You can get into it within a second or two. Yep. To come back out of it may take 20 or 30 seconds. Yep, right. And this is all useful for investigation. Keep looking, to keep monitoring, to keep knowing. And so basically what we've been talking about for this past hour is the whole issue of who am I? The answer is I am not, not that man of fear that solves um, um, a, a belt and thought it was a snake. Yep. I'm not that guy. At that one particular instant in time, yes, but mostly no. Yeah. Mostly I'm not that guy. And then when we recognize I am mostly not all of the things that I thought I was. Yeah. They're always changing. Always changing. Whatever the predominant aspect of an individual is, according to them, is actually probably not even 50%, probably not even 10% of their personality. Because personalities are very, very complicated. Yeah. And there's no real self in of, any of it. It's all just habit. Yep. Which is why so it can be automatic sometimes. Wake up and we're going to see it. That's why. We're going to wake up and we're going to see what's going on. Investigate, investigate, investigate. Mm. And there is no you. But yet there is a you to be reborn when you go into one of these woeful states. That's when mm. the that's when the self actually is born. Mm. You can be reading a book or watching TV. You can be uh, watching the news and absorbing the news. And then the, the newsman will say something you don't like. And now we take birth. Mm. I don't like that. And I become angry. Okay. That's the birth of the self, right there. Mm -hmm. Who was I before that? Can't <laughs> that remember. It's <laughs> not important. But when I become a self, that and so we remember the big times. We remember the yep. heavy stuff. And so we begin to get the delusion that I am permanent self, to where in yep. fact I'm not. I'm not. The memories change. The way we do perception changes, the way we conceive things, the way we're conscious of things, the way we feel, the body, all of that is in flux. There is no entity or a self there anywhere. Mm. And that is marvelous because that means that you have full freedom to be who you want to be. That you are not bound and determined by destiny to be that which you are already have become yeah i feel like when you identify with being a certain thing or believing a certain thing or thinking a certain way it kind of limits you to everything that that's not agreeing with that if you that don't feel that way you can be whatever you want to be your choice yeah so that's all the first fetter. That's the first fetter. The second fetter is to recognize that much of who we thought we were is actually just learned behavior from the outside. Mm. 
and that that all of those ingredients from the outside in the amalgamation that it came about was the monster called me, which means that all of the constituent components of this monster came, number one, from not me, from the outside, and two, these are ingredients of a monster. Yeah, which means it's they're not good and can't really blame yourself. Right. Why should we blame ourselves when, in fact, we're just, you know, subject to all of the stuff that's been given to us? Which and so means you are not your fetter, past. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so that second fetter really bugs us in the sense that we've got this memory system, this part of the mind that keeps giving us orders. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Because that's how we got that information, was we were given as child, we were given orders. Go clean your room, yep. go do this mathematics, go do your homework, all of that. And so we actually begin to speak to ourselves in that same language that we mm -hmm. uh, had from the parents. Yep. And so this is what Byrne calls the parent ego state. The parent ego state is all that, e uh, that parent stuff the, all the orders and the ways and the shoulds and the woulds and everything like that that made us miserable as children, we learned that, and now we're making ourselves miserable as, as adults yeah. by playing those old tapes over and over and over and over again. So that's the re and they and they come in the form of hindrances. Yep. Shoulds. I want this. I like that. You got to do it this way, et cetera, like that. And so when we throw all of that stuff out, then we can be at peace. We can just be happy. We don't have to go around doing all of the orders that we have been storing up for us to do. We can enjoy what we're doing. We can enjoy what's going on. So the, uh, the parent ego state then could be that which is considered to be Sila Bhatta Paramasa, where we store all of our rites, rules, rituals, and everything is in this parent ego state, and we learn that from our parents. That's why we label it the parent ego state. Freud mm. called it the superego. Yeah. But the actual way of looking at it is all that stuff that we got from all of the adults when we were kids we now let all of that stuff ruin our lives. When yep. we could, as an adult, we could have fun. We don't have to listen to any of that stuff anymore. <laughs> yep. And we can see that as hindrance. Those are the hindrances. It's all of the orders and all the rules and all the laws and everything like that. And we can throw that stuff out and be at peace. And once we do that enough, then that means that the doubt becomes less and less and less. Yeah. And when we finally come to the point that we know, number one, nobody's going to do it but me. Number two, I'm up to the task. And number three, this Eightfold Noble Path that the Buddha has provided is good enough, is adequate for the job. Which means now... I have all three of the kinds of doubts eradicated. That's the third fetter, which is voiced in, in this phrase. Knowledge and vision of what is, 
and what is not the path. The knowledge and vision of what is the path is the Eightfold Noble Path. The knowledge and vision of what is not the path is all of this past knowledge, all of these ideas about me and who I am, and all of that. So the actual third better of knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path can only happen once we understand personality view and Silabhata Paramatha, or our attachments to rules and rituals. Once we get rid of those two, now we're ready, now we're ripe for really understanding that the, this path does take us to freedom. Mm -hmm. And so those are the first three fetters, and that's our practice, and we keep practicing that over and over and over again, and during that practice we're developing actually the skills that we need now to, to deal with the deeper fetters of um, ill will and greed. Mm -hmm. So this is the path. And this yeah. is why these first three fetters are so important. This, this is the knowledge part of it. They set the foundation for everything. Yes. And personality view is the basic. That, that's your cornerstone. Mm-hmm. That's your point that uh, most of the weight of the entire practice goes on, who am I? And the answer is, nobody knows and nobody cares. <laughs> yep. Let's have fun instead. <laughs> yeah, that's the point, isn't it? Just uh -huh. like, don't worry about that, just have fun. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a delightful conversation, and I'm glad that you're you're practicing well, Chipman. This is good. Yeah, this is um, yeah. It's been a very insightful conversation. Okay. Well, we'll see you later. See you, Damrato. Okay. Bye bye. Bye.